The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect on anyone other than the host or his respective guest. Some know him as the defender of common sense. Others simply know him as that South African asshole on YouTube. For the purpose of this podcast, we simply refer to him as Ronaldo. Regardless of what you might call him, get ready to be slapped in the face with a little known thing called common sense. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the RG Show. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Ronaldo here, and welcome to the Sunday debate. Uh, the carte blanche music has played, and your weekend is officially over. Um, tonight, I've got a very special guest on the show. I've got Franz Cronier from the Institute of Race Relations. Franz, how's it going? Hi, Ronaldo. Uh, thanks for getting on your show. All good. Uh, I just have to manually do the things here, so I'm going to forget to switch to you, but when you start talking, I'll eventually get there. So let me just, for the ease of reference, move to this one so that both uh, we both on the screen. Um, I think maybe where we can start is just by giving people a very brief description of what the IRR is. I know that's difficult, but maybe if you can just do it in a couple of minutes. Yeah, it's a think tank, uh, Ronaldo. It was established in the 1920s. The single purpose of opposing racial discrimination and uh, fighting for the civil rights of all South Africans. And it would uh, grow through the decades to become the most prominent anti-apartheid think tank in the world. And it will, through that uh, very, very tough era, um, really perfect the methodology of using expert analysis and commentary to place pressure on political leaders and government leaders and business leaders as well to reject uh, fundamentally bad policy and adopt the policies that uh, can see the country reach its great potential. Today, a full-time team of approximately 30 people, uh, we produce uh, vast volumes of socio-economic research and we run the place like a factory, uh, something that I learned from my predecessor, John Cain Berman. And it's a factory that manufactures arguments. And the arguments need to be placed in the public domain where people can see them. And there's a reason for that, that uh, we practice what we call battle of ideas theory. The idea that the Americans lost the war in Vietnam, uh, not in the jungles of Southeast Asia, but in the living rooms of America and uh, on the streets of Washington. And Battle of Ideas theory holds that it's ultimately the side that injects the greatest volume of compelling argument into the public domain that wins great uh, ideological or policy battles. And uh, further, that societies change at points of crisis. And that at that point of crisis, the side that was injecting the greatest volume of compelling argument is likely to be that that defines the post-crisis uh, policy framework. The reason, if you come at it from another angle, it's the same reason that authoritarian governments restrict freedom of speech or, or shoot writers and authors and burn books, is that they know how incredibly dangerous it is when an alternative idea uh, catches on within a society. And throughout our history, we've practiced that methodology uh, with some success. And our uh, efforts today are directed at, at doing exactly the same thing. Hmm. So, uh, my introduction to the Institute of Race Relations came, I'd say, a couple of years ago when I did research on people that actually fought against apartheid and, and you know, the institutions that aren't spoken about as much as what uh, they should be. Um, for instance, 
uh, if you look at uh, the ANC, you would think that the ANC single-handedly decided to overthrow uh, the government with no assistance from anybody whatsoever. And the Institute of Race Relations has suffered a little bit under that, and at no fault of your own or a fault of the Institute. Um, it's merely just, uh, you know, the history books are written by the victors. And unfortunately, in this case, they just decided to leave a big chunk of it out. Yeah, it, it is there. There's another side to it too, though, um, in that I think a lot of organizations in, in the present, in, in, in the present South Africa, justify their standing and being based on what they might have done in past decades. And something that I've tried very hard to instill in the organization is, yes, we have a very brave and a very proud history, but we must be judged by what we do today. And there's almost a sort of solemn pride in it when we get some of these ridiculous accusations thrown at us and not to respond by by smacking the critic between the eyes with the place's history. Mm. Uh, but knowing that, you know, if, if you if you know so little about the country and the organization that you are being critical of will will kind of leave you there. Mm. Um, but we want to be judged by what we do today. But the, you can sometimes, and I, I've done it recently. I've been for a week uh, touring through Natal, and then last night I was in the Eastern Cape speaking. And I did there, which we don't do that often, actually start to make the case to some of the audiences we briefed that, that the history of the place is, is spectacular. You know, uh, Leo Marquardt, founder of the Liberal Party, he was a president of the Institute. Oliver Schreiner, who was described as the greatest Chief Justice South Africa never had, was overlooked for that uh, role because of his political views. He was a president of, of the Institute. Dennis Hurley, who was Archbishop of Bloemfontein and declared from the pulpit that apartheid was blasphemy. Isn't that wonderful? Mm. He was he was a president. William Cormo, who was a provisional chairperson of the ANC Youth League, was a president. Stanley Machoba, who would go on to become leader of the PAC, uh, held that same uh, role in the grand dame of the place, whose, whose fighting spirit uh, stalks us, and you can see it in all our writing and commentary. Helen Sussman, who began her career with us and later would again become so influential in our work and remain so throughout our, our life. And she was a president of the organization as well. Mm. But So the history is all there. Um, but uh, what I want is that people look at what we did today and say, based on that, we think this is a worthwhile and important organization. To an extent, I agree with you. I, I do believe that, you know, you should be based on, um, you know, the last match, pretty much. Um, and in your case, it will be the, the last uh, article that you've put out or commentary that you've given. However, I do really think it's important to build on a strong foundation. And Unfortunately, what we see today is we see that there are a bunch of critics out there that um, is, and they, the, the amount of respect or at least uh, the validity of their comments is based on the amount of followers that they have or how outraged they get. Um, I'm not going to talk about the obvious lady that uh, went to London and you know called you guys the most outlandish things. Uh, but what I want to say, though, is that you can't also ignore the, the role that the Institute has played over 90 years. I believe that this year is your 90 year, uh, well, of 90 year of existence. Yeah, no, we, we are 90 this year. Uh, but you mustn't worry too much about the trolls. <laughs> uh, the trolls aren't uh, that important, actually. If you, we, we do a lot of polling. 
and um, in the last year, a particularly great amount uh, with my uh, then colleague, uh, the very brilliant Gareth van Onselen. And what, what I've seen in polling over many years and, and brought out again up to the present is that the great majority of people are pretty sensible. Mm-hmm. Um, middle of the road, moderate conservative, basically sound ideas and opinions. And, and the fact that you've got a few sort of gatekeepers to public opinion who might sit in the media or in the commentariat or on Twitter and that they might uh, shout the odds is, is, is not that important because uh, we know, you, the polls show it, reveals it uh, quite clearly, that, um, that the public is not so easily duped uh, mm. by, by stupid ideas. No, for and, sure. Um, the trolls, I mean, have their place. So you can keep an eye on them now and again. But uh, orienting your organization to focus on the trolls is always a strategic mistake. Yeah. I also just have to say um, that if you enjoy what you're hearing and you would like to support the Institute of Race Relations, then you can become a friend of the Institute of Race Relations by SMSing your name to 32823. Now, the link is in the description below, or at least the information is in the description below. So, And also, um, I've decided that all Super Chats that uh, get placed in the comment section tonight, I will donate to the Institute of Race Relations uh, because I know that a lot of people are here because of Franz Coronier and they support the Institute. So if you would like to donate a Super Chat tonight, uh, then I will pay that over and I will send that to Franz Coronier as uh, proof. Um, but yeah, if you would like to become a member, uh, there are a lot of information below uh, the dailyfriend.co.za. I know that you've got Sithle, which is the Big Daddy Liberty, um, but all the information is below. So yeah, um, be, with that adver- uh, advertisement out of the way, um, I have to acknowledge people that have given a super chat because France, on my channel, I've got this commitment. If people give a super chat donation, I read out what they have to say because they're investing in you know this channel and investing in whomever I decide um, you know to to feature. So Jordan mentioned good day, my fellow South Afri- uh, Africans. Hello, Mr. Chos. And then also we've got a new member in Dave Miller. Thanks, Dave, for uh, joining the movement. I appreciate it. Um, and then here's a question that Jordan has asked, which I think will maybe lead into us discussing, you know, with regards to South Africa. Um, and the question is, do you believe that the pre-government uh, were ANC terrorists? I know that is uh, Jordan is from overseas, so I don't really think he's got maybe all the information with regards to that. Look, um, the ANC through its history is an organization that will evolve, established in 1912. Initially, it's a fairly moderate, uh, even conservative movement in many respects, and it will remain that uh, through its first two or three decades, through the 1920s, 30s, and into the 1940s. Uh, 1948 comes around, Smuts is defeated, and as white South Africa hurtles towards apartheid, the ANC is one of, one of the dumbest things the Nats did is to drive this organization straight into the waiting embrace of the East Germans and the Soviet Union. And uh, by the early, uh, well, by, by, by the early 1960s, it's, the history is, of course, complex. The ANC is ever more under the influence, initially the Communist Party and later the ANC itself of Soviet dogma, and particularly the ideology of national democratic revolution. And that will change the character of the ANC to a very great extent. So this moderate conservative group that you start with by the 60s is turning 
um, and it will remain uh, deeply under Soviet influence through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and uh, right into the very early 1990s. But the tide, in some respects, in the party will turn again in 1991 when Mr. Mandela goes to Davos. He's recently released from prison, and he appears at Davos to make a speech, and the world is really there to hear what will this man say who will now lead South Africa. And uh, the message is not uh, we'll nationalize the commanding heights and uh, chase all the whites into the sea. The message is far more pragmatic. And there, there are various backstories to that, including the appreciation uh, that if um, pragmatic policy is not introduced uh, within a number of years, given the economic wreckage the ANC had inherited from apartheid, that it would have gone hat in hand to the IMF and in the eyes of a ruthless ANC leaders, that would have been the end of their revolution. Mm -hmm. And from 91 to 2007, the party becomes quite pragmatic again in many respects. It's uh, gear policy of the mid-1990s, many internal contradictions, but also uh, certainly relative to what was to come, a lot of pragmatism, and the results were there to be seen. Um, uh, debt to GDP was cut in half uh, in 13 years. A budget deficit inherited at negative 5% became a surplus 13 years later. The number of people with uh, jobs doubled in the first uh, 15 years or so of ANC rule. Um, for every shack built newly after 94, initially 10 formal houses were being built in, in the country. And that became the ANC from 91 to, to the end of 2007 when at Polokwane they eject Thabo and Beki and, and, and throw out the pragmatism. And uh, post-2007 to the present, you have the corrupt ethnic nationalist ANC back again. Uh, in the main, that's the dominant. It's always been there, but that becomes the dominant yeah. ANC again. And the consequences uh, we, can, we can see around us. Um, on the question of the armed struggle itself, uh, the Institute's position was always very sound, a liberal position, that that violence directed at um, civilian population was unacceptable. And the Institute did a lot of the pioneering research, not just in, the vi in terms of the violence directed at minorities, but, but far more so at the ruthless people's war that was directed at destroying the ANC's black rivals. And uh, there the the, the, the amazing work of my uh, colleague, Anthea Jeffrey, has left that uh, part of our country's history on the record forever. Mm. You can also go back, uh, Ronaldo, and ask the question, if you were a young uh, black South African, uh, faced with the abuse, the racism the, of the South African state at the time, uh, what, what, what would you have done? And I think it's a, a brave chap today who would say, I would not have followed. You, you, you youngsters here, mm. I would not have gone into exile for military training and so on. It's, it's very tough to, to make that call. And I've had the privilege of getting to know through my job uh, some uh, uh, former uh, senior uh, uh, people of Mkonto Wesizwe, the armed wing of uh, the African National Congress, and some of them today, some of the most decent people you will ever meet, mm. and they went into exile and joined MK because in deep in their hearts they felt it was the right thing to do to bring about a free and a prosperous South Africa. So the, my answer to a question like that 
is 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 fairly a complex terrain that's been opened up here. No, for sure. And uh, it was just an interesting question, I think, from an American point of view. Um, to answer your question, I would, without a shadow of a doubt, have uh, fought against the government of the time. So um, I completely understand that, you know, it's easy to judge people after the fact. Um, and it's not once you have that lived experience and you understand what people had to go through to nearly four decades of oppression, then surely you have to understand that if the the people that you want to negotiate with don't want to come to the table then you have to use different means in order to get the conversation going but uh, i think yeah i mean we can get into a two-hour long discussion with regards to that i think one of the important things that that people are here to listen and and maybe get your insight on is um the national health insurance and ewc because i do think that those two policies are policies can that can literally destroy this country so I think um, if you would like to give your opinion on it, or at least the the RRR stance on and on this on these policies and what you think, uh, you know, we need to do in order to fight it, or if you agree with it, hopefully not. Look, uh, when the ANC was driven into Eastern Europe in exile, it, it deeply instilled within the psyche of the party was the idea of national democratic revolution. And National Democratic Revolution is built on the idea of Lenin's theory of imperialism, that the wealth of colonial powers is inherently illegitimate. It arises only from the exploitation of the colonized. And the purpose of any anti-colonial revolution needs to be to dispossess the colonizer and everything that flows from the colonizer. And you can extend that today all the way to our middle class, failing which the poor will never be liberated and the, and the revolution will never be complete. Now, that's the context within which to understand current attacks on property rights. In the run-up to the ANC's conference at Polokwane in 2007, the one where Mr. Mbeki was ejected, my analyst colleagues began to see more and more evidence of a change in the strategic environment here. The vociferous attacks in the run-up to that conference on the willing buyer, willing uh, seller principle with regards to property rights. And thereafter, they will track in the decade of just more than that to where we find ourselves today. More than 30 separate attacks on property rights are taking various forms. In parallel with those attacks, there was a growing campaign of propaganda to identify the owners of property as, as somehow a central to the current uh, uh, structural unemployment of poverty desperation of many black South Africans. So, for example, the idea is, is concocted that, that white South Africans stole the land and for that reason blacks are poor today. The, the idea is concocted that uh, pension fund holders, uh, their holdings lie unutilized in financial institutions. And if they could only be used by the state, then the economy might grow faster and the poor might be liberated, or the idea takes hold and now with doctors that uh, the private medical industry and people who use it are greedy and selfish. They, they hoard, uh, to use the term used by a senior ANC official, money and medical resources, and that's why public hospitals are failing. Now, so you have this after 2007, the beginnings of the policy assaults on property rights. You then have the propaganda that goes with it. Now, the purpose of propaganda is stigmatization, and the purpose of stigmatization is to make the targeted group the other, so that when uh, it is attacked, a farmers, doctors, pension fund holders, whatever they are, 
No one will come to its defense. And um, the, the upshot of it all is that we're in a position today where a spectrum ranging from farmers that will run through doctors, that will run to pension fund holders, that with the national credit legislation of the past 10 days now includes banks, the view is beginning to take hold that it is good and, and just the right thing to do to allow the state the power to take away the assets, the belongings, the benefits of the hard work of things that people have worked for, that the state must be able to take that away, whatever it is, without paying compensation for it, because then we will become a better society. And it's incredibly dangerous. So it's not just a question of EWC or NHI. There's a thread running through all of it, the same thread. And at the end of that thread lies the collapse of our economy and lies the collapse of the constitutional order and civil rights. Because property rights anchor substantive human liberty in every free and open society. Take those rights away and the inevitable collapse of erosion leading to the collapse of civil rights will follow. These things are rules. This is not this. This is cause and effect. And at the same time, without the security offered by a sound property rights framework, our country will never draw the fixed investment it needs to liberate millions of people from poverty. So the, the question you commence with, the answer again, is the, 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 the ideological origins are deep and, and, and old, and the manifestation of the problem is uh, growing by the day. And I think those first people who thought, well, uh, you know, first they came for the farmers, but I wasn't a farmer, so are beginning to realize more and more. And property rights, Ronaldo, they're like a pregnancy, as you well understand. You, you have them or you don't. You're pregnant or you're not. You don't sometimes have property rights in some areas and not in others. Yeah. And if the expropriation bill as currently drafted goes through and with it the constitutional amendment, then property rights are gone and the consequences that flow from that will be very serious and will directly affect the lived experience of all South Africans for quite a long time to come. Mm. And a, and a big thing that a lot of people don't realize is the fact that it affects not just white people as what is portrayed. It affects all South Africans. Um, and even with uh, the, the black middle class that we have currently, which is bigger than the entire white population, it affects everybody. Um, I'm, I'm not just saying that it's affecting the middle class, but we know that your middle class and upper class are the ones that actually own a, a lot of more, possibly more than one property. So this affects not just white people as what the ANC tries to portray, it, but in actual fact affects every single South African. There's a moral question. Property rights is a moral question because it is, it is fundamentally wrong and unjust to be a society as we are today in which millions of people this evening, as we sit here, are on property or in homes that they do not have title to. And more than 10 million people do not have a job who should be in employment today, with youth unemployment rates now rivaling 50%. And on the current trajectory of property rights policy in our country, there is no prospect that that is going to change for them. So anyone who stands behind the idea of the further erosion of property rights has direct culpability and responsibility for maintaining the poverty and desperation that many black South Africans have inherited out of our apartheid era. And, and they need to be called out on that. Mm. Uh, I spoke last night in Port Elizabeth 
to um, farmers who were mostly white and seemed fairly prosperous. And uh, at the end of my talk after dinner, I addressed for them the question of black farmers and white farmers. And I said to them, listen here, you guys need to start saying what you know is true, that the interests of black or white farmers or emerging or commercial farmers are exactly the same. Your success as white farmers was built on access to cheap capital, uh, title to the property that you own, and very, very uh, sound extension services. And black South Africans, particularly given their history in the country, deserve nothing less than the full benefits of exactly the same model. So stop buggering around with silly ideas, such as how expropriating property might possibly deliver prosperity to anyone. You as white farmers know that's nonsense. Mm. Stand up and start to insist that black South Africans must be given the benefits exactly the same benefits and advantages that you had over the decades so that they can also be successful. And I think that's the way to handle uh, the, the question of um, uh, property rights, race, redress, and our history. Because if we, the, the, well, what the um, opponents of property rights uh, will not concede is that it is only in a South Africa that deepens property rights protections and extends those rights to more people, that we will begin to be in a position as a country to make substantive inroads into the inherited inequalities, unemployment, poverty, and desperation that comes out of our apartheid past. Mm. Um, Pseudo Ruth, I've noted your uh, super chat donation. Thank you very much. I will ask uh, Franz the question at the end because I think it's appropriate and it's not really forming part of the discussion now. Um, however, Jesse Miller also gave a super chat donation. Thank you. Um, his question, I think, is quite uh, relevant to what we're talking about now. And that is, are the fundamentals of the new constitution taught to youngsters in schools? Are they, are they core values that could unite all South Africans? I think that's quite a good question. Let's go to core values. I think my answer might surprise uh, people, uh, particularly if you read newspapers or follow Twitter. The impression is created that we're a society that has turned against itself, that relations between people are, are the worst they have ever been, and that uh, the end is, is upon us. It's nonsense. Uh, polling reveals for us time and time again that a good seven to eight out of every 10 South Africans uh, want the same thing out of the country, and they agree on how to get there. The, the South African dream, if there's such a thing, is to leave rural areas, uh, to go to cities, uh, to find a job so that you can have the dignity of looking after your own family, that you can find a home that you can probably own, put your kids in good schools in safe neighborhoods so that they have opportunities that you did not have before. Mainstream South African opinion is moderate to conservative, center-right, hardworking, uh, law and order, a decent kind of people. And I've, I've I've done this for a long time, and I've delved very deeply into these reams of spreadsheets that are produced by various polling organizations. And, and what I see in that is that uh, you can go as far as to say South Africans actually like each other. And they, there's a vast amount of respect across lines of class and race, to the point that, that you might even go this far as to say that one of the great successes of the past 25 years 
has been relations between people. Now, in the midst of that is the poisonous influence of some newspaper editors, a talk show hosts, a commentators, and the Twitterarian, where people who uh, seem to take pleasure in in showing in sowing hate and dissent within our society, and uh, the danger is that uh, that is what people hear uh, from the commentariat, and then they start to believe it, and they start to wonder, well, is this in in fact really the case? The hard evidence, however is that the silent majority of South Africans are good and decent people who despite the media despite social media and despite the politicians and their government and and given the history of our country Ronaldo it's extraordinary uh, retain a great capacity for affection and support and mutual respect for each other it's the most powerful countervailing force in favor of our country's long-term success and it's it's something that must be worked very hard at preserving yeah and it it's something that i've also said time and time again on my channel because you you tend to hear the fringe groups on either side that that are shouting at each other and then in the middle you've got the vast majority of people that are just your everyday south africans that want to live their life they want to interact with their family and with friends and I mean, if you look on a daily basis, what interactions are like across the racial spectrum and different class spectrum in South Africa, you would see that the majority of people are friendly. Um, I mean, if you go into a high-end retail store, um, there's people of different colors talking to each other, interacting. Maybe if somebody's hat blows off in the wind, you'll find somebody picks it up and gives it back to them. But you don't hear about these stories. All that you hear about is, like you said, the, the mainstream media, or at least some of them, that would like to get the clicks so what they talk about is all the negativity in south africa and then also on social media we know that twitter isn't real life because the penetration of twitter in south africa is six million people um, and we've got what 59 million people living in this country so it's not really a true reflection of what is going on in south africa yeah no it's hardly a reflection and and we now have the hard evidence to show that but it is tough to get that into the mainstream and uh, my experience is that if if my colleagues were to put out a statement that says that uh, uh, this is a uh, uh, we're the worst in the world at whatever it might be, we'll run through most of the mainstream media channels over the next 48 hours, the talk shows, the radio news, all of that. Put out a comment that says that relations between South Africans are actually pretty good or say what's true that racism is not one of South Africa's major problems. And we find it very, very difficult to get a fair showing in the mainstream and traditional media. It's almost as if there are uh, groups and entities whose very existence appears to depend upon being able to convince society that racism is the central fissure in the society and the greatest problem that the country faces. Mm. Uh, the the problems we face as a society are, are, are serious, but uh, racism is rather far down the pecking order. If you ask people, for example, which too few of the commentariat do, uh, what do you think are the great problems that are holding South Africa back? And uh, your um, viewers of this show of yours would do well to go to our website, ira.org.za, and go and look for the HOPE reports. 
And there's a, a two, there's some about how life improved in South Africa. And there's another series of hope reports about relations between people. Go and read that information, the, the numbers, the polls, the answers are all there. Spread it around through your communities. It's very important that mm. the counter to the hate mongering is uh, more prominently distributed than um, is the case to date for our country. And it, it's also based on actual evidence. It's based on interactions with your everyday South Africans, which is a little bit different than an opinion piece on News 24 or yeah. whatever platform you choose to listen to. Yeah, uh, in the face of that, we're faced with ridiculous counters. I remember one young analyst of ours on a television show, and this person explained that our polling had showed that South Africans did not regard racism as a major problem. And the, and the idiotic anchor of the show said, but how can that be true if we have examples like Penny Sparrow? And, and we said, well, you know, we, we have Penny Sparrow. Uh, there she is. Mm -hmm. And then you have an entire body of polling research that shows that she is a, a, a vast exception, a complete extreme, an outlier to the norm. Mm -hmm. But you can have a, a, a person who would present uh, themselves as a serious journalist asking a question as stupid as that. Mm. Uh, Brett, I've noted your super chat. I will also ask uh, that question. So I've got two questions that I need to ask you at the end, Franz, which I think it's more uh, a Franz opinion rather than, the, you know, CEO of the IRR. Um, but yeah, if you guys would like to, if you like what you're hearing with regards to the Institute of Race Relations and what Franz Cornier is saying, then in the description below, you can SMS your name to 32823 and they will contact you um, so that you can possibly um, get more involved and also make a donation, a monthly donation or something. Or what you can also do is if you uh, would like to ask a question uh, or give an opinion, you can use a super chat um, and all money that is given via the super chat tonight um, on this channel will go to the IRR. So I think with regards to that, um, Franz, when you were in Port Elizabeth the last time and uh, I went to go and, and listen to you speak, there was one thing that really um, impressed me with regards to something that you mentioned. It was quite factual. Um, and I've mentioned it a couple of times in some of my videos and my live streams is you know, the, the five-year analogy, and I don't know if you remember, but it's pretty much what you said. If you looked at South Africa in 1989 and you said that within five years we will be a democracy with, uh, you know, a, a growing economy, then, you know, I don't want to ruin it, but I want to, you, if you know what I'm talking about, I want you to, to discuss exactly what you did in that speech, if you can recall it. Yeah, we do we do a lot of uh, futures and scenario analysis within the IRR and um, and uh, the great challenge of that kind of work is to convince the audience you're addressing that the world uh, that they will live in down the line might look very different to the world they live in today and um, one of the stories I always tell the one you make reference to is the story of South Africa in August of 1985, which is appropriate as we're sitting in August of 2019 mm. today. And uh, on the 15th of August, I think, 1985, Pierre Vieira will go to Durban and will make the Rubicon speech. And the context is catastrophic. The economy is nowhere. People are fleeing the country. The white conscripts in conflict with the black activists. The Cold War is on the go. The the, the ANC and its allies in, in prison and in exile. And Boerta that night says in Durban, in the face of this, that I will not lead white South Africa down the path of abdication and suicide. Mm. 
And if you had in the in the aftermath of that, let's say a few a week or two after, as as an analyst, which is essentially what I am, I stood before people and said, "Listen here, for everything that you can see, within a decade, the last leader of the National Party will become the tourism minister, begin to become the tourism minister in an ANC government, and not so much any ANC government. I mean, we'll cut." debt in half, a deficit becomes a surplus, growth goes back to 5%, etc. People would have said you're insane, that, that many things can happen, but but not that. It's it's similar to if you stood in the mall in, in Washington, D.C. now, almost 12 years ago, and uh, where Mr. Obama made uh, sort of said, yes, we can, to, to, to the sort of million people, and uh, said to your uh, mate, you know, I see this and it all looks like something, but the next man to stand there will be Donald Trump. The world changes in 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 extraordinary ways, and these aren't the outliers. South Africa was not the exception. The 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 US civil rights movement of the sixties to a black man in the White House with Mr. Obama is not the exception. Change happens um, very quickly and is seldom anticipated by analysts. And we think we now understand some of the reasons why, and they rest in complex systems theory that small changes in the present conditions of complex systems bring about huge shifts in their future circumstances. And uh, something we would say to, to will be said as an organization in the 80s, and we, we would say uh, to you today, is that the efforts of relatively small numbers of people using small amounts of private money to influence the more effective spending of public money, that's classic battle of ideas theory, can produce exponential and spectacular results. And our country is actually geared up, and, and I think our next question perhaps should go in this direction, is actually teed up for profound change in the next decade. And it's quite possible that the South Africa that we're going to live in 10 years down the line is going to be unrecognizable compared to the one that we're living in at the moment. And yeah, I mean, that that is pretty much that hits a nail on the head. So I know that, you know, there, there's two type of outcomes that we can live in. And I, I would like it if you can maybe just touch on those, if you don't mind, uh, the two scenarios, if you will. Yeah, um, look, well, what, what is the context now? Um, the fiscal position is hopeless. Uh, the budget deficit, the difference between what the government spends and earns, is approaching negative 6%, and the economy is going to grow at about 0.6%. And no matter how you cut that up, and, and how uh, cleverly a bank economist tell you there's nothing to worry about, um, you are going to run out of money. And we can see that in escalating uh, government debt levels already. So the South African government is going to start running out faster and faster out of the money it needs to keep the uh, country going and the cash flow, therefore, that the ANC needs in order to keep its card raised together. At the same time, maybe we see already the evidence that the ANC is running out of votes. Uh, in the national election that's just passed, the, the headline result for the ANC is up in the in the high 50 percentiles, but polls suggest that amongst younger voters, the ANC was much closer to 50 percent. Amongst the voters with matric, the ANC was probably under 50 percent. And with voters with a university degree, the ANC was probably under 25 percent. Wow. 
uh, amongst um, uh, uh, urban voters, the ANC got absolutely slayed. And, and much of its high 50 percentile final result is therefore carried on the back of increasingly elderly, badly educated rural people. Now, that means that ANC voter support is on the wrong end of three of South Africa's mega trends. The first is demographics. We're a country today where only 35 percent of people are over the age of 35. And ANC support is strongest amongst people who are in their, in, in their 60s at max life expectancy at the moment. Mm. We're a country that's urbanizing very quickly. And ANC support is on the wrong side of that trend. And we're a country that, despite the education system, the education profile of people is improving. And the ANC is on the wrong side of that trend. And if you take the current decrepit state of the party and the fact that it's going to run out of money and that it's already likely to run out of votes, then you've got enough material to begin to ask the question, not as many of our clients put it to us, what will the ANC do in a future South Africa? But rather, equally valid now is the question of what will South Africa do without the ANC? Because it's plausible outcome now that in 2024, the ANC is not going to have a national majority anymore. Yeah, that, that's quite a South Africa that I look forward to. Um, I, I note uh, Mark de Villiers, a super chat donation. Thanks, Mark. Um, I will ask that question at the end. Or maybe I think we can lead into that question now, which is, how is the battle of ideas going? Is progress being made? It seems like the NDR agenda is going full uh, full steam ahead. It is going full steam ahead, but I think uh, the consequences are now being experienced. Um, uh, growth projections for South Africa are nowhere. Eskom alone, we think, pins economic growth uh, to sub uh, Eskom's generation capacity as pins economic growth to sub 2% uh, for the next decade. Um, the ANC is, has crushed between its now two dominant factions, the pragmatists that had led the party and the country from 1991 to 2007. All that is left is on the one hand, uh, the very corrupt ethnic and racial nationalists, and on the other hand, the dogmatic left-wing ideologues and the communists. And Mr. Ramaphosa sits in the middle of them. And as he comes under terrifying attack from the ethnic nationalists and the corrupt, he runs for cover into the now waiting embrace of the left wing ideologues and the communists and in exchange gives them a, a far a, a too great an influence over policy making and control of the cabinet that now extends from portfolios from labor uh, to trade and industry. And uh, the question that arises is why does he not run to the middle? Because he's supposed to be a moderate. What he is, incidentally, we do not know. Uh, but we, we, we are skeptical. He doesn't run to the middle, our answer is, because the middle is no longer there. There is no ANC middle. So what you might be seeing in the sort of accelerated rollout of the National Democratic Revolution is a desperate effort to destroy property rights as a primary objective in order to set up the rapid erosion of civil rights and the rule of law and constitutional protections broadly in order to head off with some of the crooks and the thugs and the ANC now perceive as the inevitable prospect of a future 
electoral defeat. And uh, to answer your question that I haven't answered yet, <laughs> the prospects for the country, broadly speaking, are therefore the following. If we are able to ensure that the constitutional framework and the civil rights culture, property rights is the key thing here, lives longer than the ANC is going to live, then we have the capacity to rebuild once that party is defeated. If, on the other hand, the ANC lives longer than the constitutional framework and property rights and the rule of law, then you pick your future on a spectrum somewhere between um, Zimbabwe and Venezuela. And those are the, the, the fun, those are the broad uh, uh, options mm. that lie uh, in, in wait for us. But, you know, it's a bold ANC, can it reform? Possibly. But ever more, I find it very, very difficult to see how um, the, 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 the structure that that party now is, these two factions, mm. war with each other in stalemate as they run out of money and voters. I think the evidence is enough to say that perhaps it's all over. And I, I have to say, though, that a lot of people don't seem to understand or grasp the fact that Sir Ramaphosa is the weakest president that the ANC has had. And when I say weakest, I mean more than one thing. But the one thing that I do mean is that with regards to support within the ANC, I believe, and you'll probably correct me, but I believe that Nelson Mandela had the strongest mandate out of all the ANC presidents. Then it was Thabo Mbeki. Then it was... Uh, uh, Jacob Zuma and Cyril, I believe, won with four or five hundred votes out of what four thousand, five thousand uh, seats or uh, votes that that were there within the ANC. Yeah, at Nasrek, he won by I think it was one hundred eighty-nine votes. Wow, out of more than four thousand seven hundred delegates, meaning that at ninety people voted differently, then a Dr. Lamini Zuma would be in charge of our country today. And and if he was to um, to go, Mr. Ramaphosa then uh, we might, in fact, see uh, Dr. Dlamini Zuma back again, although that would simply accelerate what perhaps now is the terminal decline that that party is in. Mm. Uh, the Carplander gave a donation earlier, and uh, he, I don't know what's the correct term for it, he's an ex accelerationist, um, kind of, his belief, you know, that he wants everything to go bad quicker so that everything can recover. I mean, he's like uh, very much against urbanization. Uh, so he said, Franz said, South Africa dream is to urbanize. And then he goes, oof, no, no thanks. So I don't know really if you've got a comment on that, but I mean, this is something that between him and me that we've always discussed and laughed about. Well, I mean, that is what, what people want. They, that is where they go. You can, you can count from year to year the number of people in rural areas than those in urban areas. You ask people what they want and you see that demand again. Um, I think uh, for, you know, it's, 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 it's this funny thing that um, if you sit in a, in a hut in the Eastern Cape uh, overlooking the sea, your great desire is to leave that and come to a city, whereas the sort of bankers of Santon are sitting in the city. Their greatest dream is one day to make enough money to have a hut by the sea. That's so amazing, that maybe yeah. your, uh, a correspondent uh, makes a very good point. But yeah. it's a, probably a, a broader, uh, uh, more deeper, deeply philosophical point than uh, I will be able to address adequately 
for you here this evening. No, for sure. I mean, we've already 50 minutes in and it feels like it was five minutes. Uh, so I don't know if you want to go a little bit longer or if you're time restricted. Um, but I, I do think there's two things that we, I still want to talk to you about briefly. So do you have maybe 15 minutes more? Yeah, sure. Okay, great, because uh, this is a riveting interview, or at least discussion. The The two things that I want to talk about, let, let, let's get to the first thing, right? Um, and that is the fact that, do you think the ANC, if they are defeated at the polls, will get, hand over the country willingly? Because that is a big problem that I've encountered with a lot of people that are question whether, you know, if in 2024 they get elected or voted out, whether they will hand it over peacefully. Yeah, I think they, they wouldn't want to, but I think in practice they will, because what mechanism would they use to prevent that? The the clinging to power at all costs is not something that will happen after they're defeated, whenever that happens. It's, it's something they will price into the equation ahead of time and try and destroy the civil rights culture to prevent being defeated in the first place. But But should it ever happen, that on that uh, result screen at the IEC one evening, the figure comes up, you know, 48%, then they're done. And, uh, as, and, and, and then they will turn on each other in, in a final a frenzied orgy of uh, <laughs> internal conflict and recrimination. And, and probably five or ten years after that, uh, there might be very little uh, left of them at all. Um, uh, if, if that were to occur. The, so, so the danger of, of clinging to power is not if after they're defeated, the danger is the length to which they would be prepared to go to prevent being defeated at all in the first place. And, and I believe that, that we're seeing that now with the, the absolute desperation of the NHI and the EWC policies that they're trying to imp, uh, implement. But you know, I'm sure what you are aware of is that is not what most South Africans want. So they are listening to, you know, the the extreme left in this regard to, to try and, and get that support. It's very similar to what the ANC did throughout the election campaigns, which has said, watch out, your social grants are going to be taken away or watch out, you know, uh, land reform won't take place if the ANC is not in charge anymore. Yes. Um, look, why? The question is why? Why? Why do they do such things? And uh, the, the answers are twofold. One is ideology. Western analysts get emerging markets wrong all the time because they never take into account sufficiently the impact and influence of revolutionary ideology. And that's where national democratic revolution becomes important, which distilled down to the essence is that it's good and right for the state to be empowered to take away the things created by people who created them because then the society will become a better place. So number one is ideology, and number two is the nature of the ANC itself. There is no pragmatic middle left, or it's, it's virtually been vanquished. There's, there's, there's very little of it going. And so you have a choice between the ethnic nationalists and the crooks and the left-wing ideologues. Now, both have an interest in expropriation without compensation. For the crooks, it's to steal the proceeds and for the left-wing ideologues, it is to nationalize the proceeds to bring about some socialist nirvana that uh, South Africans might uh, one day live in. And in that respect, the stalemate that appears to be emerging between the two factions, with, with the paralyzed uh, Mr. Ramaphosa between them, is perhaps not the worst outcome for the country at this time, because if either faction was allowed to prevail, 
by vanquishing its opponent, it would then have free reign to make and implement policy. And the consequences of that, given the nature of policy at the moment, would be very serious. But even deeper, I think, than um, the question of, of looting the proceeds or bringing about a socialist nirvana, I think deeper than that is the fear now of defeat and the understanding that to head off defeat, you need to do serious damage mm. to the civil rights framework and the constitutional framework. And if you can win on property rights by diluting them sufficiently, you throw the door wide open to the erosion of, of civil rights as well. Mm. Brett, I've noted your super chat and I'll ask that at the end. I'll leave some space to ask uh, Franz some private questions as Franz Cronier. I think uh, the fact that we're moving on to uh, the fact, you know, our, our constitutional or the, the fundamental rights. Another thing that popped up this week, which I'm sure you are aware of, is the old South African flag and, um, you know, what AfriForum's Aaron's Roots have done. Um, I'm not sure if, if you would like to comment on on what Aaron's Roots have done or if you would like to give a comment on, you know, the, the verdict with regards the, to the flag, the old this South African flag. This is our advice, because it's a trap that people fall into time and again. Distinguish between the issue and the principle. The issue is whether the flag is offensive to some people. Uh, and in, it, it certainly is. The principle is whether the state should be allowed to ban, because that's what it is. It has done. You may not display it. That is a banning order. Whether you use the word ban or not in your judgment is irrelevant. Whether the state should be allowed to ban things that uh, people don't like. And time and time again, this conflict between the issue and the principle plays out. The, 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 the you, people support the issue and they sacrifice the principle and later they regret the principle that has been sacrificed. And our advice is that it is better as a general rule and particularly given the precarious uh, state of our country today to um, never uh, set one foot on that slippery slope of allowing the state to dictate what you may say and think. It is better to be offended and to face things that you find offensive and hurtful, as this surely is for many people. It is better to be in that position than to be in a position where the state has banned a thought or an idea because of the precedent that is being set. And many of the people who champion the decision of that court are people who should know better, such as journalists and academics and commentators, whose very existence depends upon the ability to freely articulate ideas. And the one thing that I've seen time and time again, especially, uh, and I'll mention it, if you look at some of the ENCA journalists, it seems that they've turned into um, this woke for pay. So they are willing to be woke on, on whatever will keep them in their job and make sure that they get their salary. Um, so I think this is a good point then, because I, I know that AfriForum isn't, was involved with this case. Um, and the one question that Brett did have is, what is the RR's uh, relationship with AfriForum? Like, do you guys have a good working relationship? I know that, I know that, but maybe if you can just uh, elaborate a little bit on that. It's been a bit tense over recent months, and there's been some 
conflict between the organizations over um, a commentary they published about Hendrik Verwurt that um, many senior IRR staffers uh, thought was unacceptable. And we called them out on that and challenged them, and uh, they didn't like that. Organizations can have conflicts with each other. It's uh, not a particularly uh, bad thing. I think it's uh, probably quite a good thing. And um, the, 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 that is the state of play that we're in at the moment. Um, I would hope, I was asked by a journalist if I could promise that I would never, ever, ever again um, uh, talk to AfriForum uh, because of what they've done on Favort and uh, whether whether we, we could make such a commitment. And I, as answer to that man was that, you know, if, if, if I had to, because of something someone had done, that we disagreed with fundamentally, never, ever, ever talk to them again. I mean, it's just silly. Yeah. Then who would we be talking to today? Surely we should now break ties with Cyril Ramaphosa, given the revelations around his campaign. Uh, if we were approached by an ANC leader with advice, we should not talk to them, given the experience of X. If a mining firm approached us for advice, we should not talk to them if, if, if they were at all found culpable in the events at, at Marikana, the terrible shootings of those mine workers. Mm. Now, of course, we're, we're open to, to any kind of relationship with any organization, but we stand firmly on our own two feet and we defend the principles that we have uh, championed throughout our history. And if that means sometimes there has to be a tense standoff with the group, we welcome it. It's what we do and it plays out as it plays out. And I believe it strengthens the democracy of this country and the fact that you can disagree on, on certain points, but then you agree on other points. I mean, you see this in Parliament, you see this in, in councils all across uh, South Africa where, you know, uh, the ANC and the, the DA might fundamentally disagree. But when it comes to voting for a budget that they both feel strongly about, then you, you vote together. And then on other issues, you vehemently disagree. So, you know, I, I think to, to just build on what you said, I mean, that it, it's an idiotic assumption to make that you promise you'll never speak to anybody um, from somebody or from an organization that you maybe disagree on, on one or two things with. I mean, it doesn't make sense. I mean, the disagreement on the characterization of apartheid was a profound disagreement. I mean, a fundamental disagreement uh, that, that the view was that there was a soft soaping of the evils and of the suffering that had been inflicted on black South Africans over many years. So this was a, this is a particularly serious disagreement. It's one that has uh, not uh, subsequently been resolved, but um, uh, that is not something that worries us terribly one way or another. Mm. Um, the last official question that I just would like to ask from my side is perhaps um, I, I enjoy your commentary and I and I trust in your you know your analysis of things. So could you maybe just the three main political parties, can you just give us a, a, a current um, opinion of the leadership or the leader of that party and also the current state of that political party? Well, the, 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 the EFF has done spectacularly well. It's great from its origins. We don't think it's an opposition party in the main. Uh, obviously, it is an opposition party, but I think it's a, more deeply than that it's a franchise of the ruling party established under protest and exile. 
And the play within the EFF undoubtedly is to force the ANC to a position where its majority is on the line and wait for a former, for a future uh, secretary general or a deputy president of the ANC to phone and to say, what is your price to come and bail us out of this? And the EFF leadership will say nothing less than deputy president of the ANC, giving us a shot at the presidency of the country in due course. That, that is a serious uh, threat to the future. Although the, 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 the odds are that as the ANC plummets faster and faster, anything that attaches itself to the ANC will be pulled down by that same momentum and you might uh, get uh, a two birds with one stone, as it were, <laughs> uh, in, in, if such a situation were to arise. The, the Democratic Alliance, I think, has performed appallingly over recent years. I think it's made major strategic uh, blunders. I think its analysis of what South African politics is really about is wrong in almost every respect. It's, it's, it's behaved uh, badly. It's, 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 it's attacked many of its own supporters, uh, seemingly indifferent uh, initially to the consequences. And uh, there's a process of introspection going on within that party at the moment. And the results will have to be seen. But I fear the epitaph of never missing an opportunity to miss an opportunity uh, might be what one day is erected on the headstone of that party. And then let, the let me just say that it's not my opinion. It's France's opinion. Let me just say that. I have to say it. <laughs> no, 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 I, I can't. I'm not the spokesperson. I can't say anything. Continue, please. France will say it's also the opinion of many senior leaders of the DA. The, um, oh, shit. No. Nope. The, 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 um, the ANC we've spoken about, I think, you know, I mean, as, as I've said, unanticipated things happen. But given the obstacles that now confronts and the structure of it, perhaps past the point of no return. And uh, where was that point? probably December of 2007 at Polokwane, when they ejected the pragmatic core of the party and the ideologues were back and the ethnic and racial nationalists weren't held in line, uh, weren't kept in line, and the consequences are now there to be seen. Mm. Um, EFF, uh, lastly, probably near a ceiling at, at the present, although things can change in the at, at around 10 in the low teens and that aligns uh, with our polls that there is not a market for the racist violent uh, fascist uh, uh, offering uh, that is uh, made by that party and uh, extraordinary if you consider that half of uh, young black people in our country do not have a job and a comment as ever on the magnanimity of of many black south africans in the face of so many decades of deprivation and abuse that an offering as 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 brilliantly marketed as the EFF has marketed it's it's offering essentially violent threat against minorities is what that party is that uh, in the face of such terrible circumstances and stagnating standards of living that uh, support for that party is not higher than it is it's something I mean sometimes people confront us and and say, is, is there nothing you can do to stop 
uh, the, the EFF. And, and we say, of course, we can't stop the EFF. The EFF mm. is a function of a country that the economy grows at about 0% and half of young people don't have a job. Uh, coming off uh, our apartheid past, what do you think you're going to get? Mm. You're going to get radical politics. But, but the, 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 the astonishing thing is not the presence or growth of the EFF. It's rather the absence thereof. And mm. uh, a comment again that there is a moderate majority and that if uh, we can, uh, in the years immediately ahead, hold the line on civil rights and the rule of law, we have the prospects to rebuild our country in the, um, in the decade that lies ahead. Mm. And it's, it, I, I do believe that we're going to see that. Uh, we've seen that with the IFP um, in the sense that the IFP was one of the biggest uh, organizations that fought apartheid with the ANC and they had their conferences weekend where Mangasutu Butelezi gave over his, I think, four-decade leadership role. Um, and I believe that, uh, unfortunately, in my opinion, the IFP is it's not a big threat or in the sense, uh, not a threat, that's the wrong word to use. It, it's not really uh, one of the main parties that, that could possibly take over the country. And I believe that maybe one day we'll have that same conversation about the ANC, uh, whereas now they, they've governed for 25 years. I think in a decade or two from now, we'll look back at the ANC and they will have split and, and not be relevant as what they are right now. Yeah, I, was, I was reminded of that uh, earlier this week when uh, we were touring in Natal, talking to people and joining me on that tour was uh, my new colleague, Helen Ziller. And, I haven't even spoken about that. I'm sorry. Like you can just and, maybe and elaborate on Helen, that. Um, Helen made, uh, I, I sat at the back in one speeches and, and that, that were really good to hear. I mean, it was the sort of thing that needs to be said it was, it was a, a, a privilege to sit there and hear her. And uh, one of the things she said is she remembers, as a, I think, as a young journalist that some or other occasion, John Forster walking into the room. And she said it was as if God himself had entered, given the power and the influence and the, and the, the, the manner in which the, the people sort of prostrated themselves at, at his feet, literally, or almost, figuratively. And she says today, where are they? Where are they? All that power, all that influence, all that sucking up to them by various people who would deny it today. Mm. And they were gone. And uh, she went on to say, in fact, but you must talk to her on your show. She went on to say that she has seen the collapse of political parties in her career. And that what she sees in the ANC today is all the symptoms she saw in some of those that went before. Mm. And I, I completely forgot to mention it because we've been so discussing, you know, the South African aspect. I mean, firstly, congratulations on Helen Ziller forming part of the RR. I mean, I'm sure you are well aware of what exactly you have received in Helen Ziller. Um, and what can we expect from her with the RR in the future? Well, uh, you can expect her in a role as a senior analyst. She's a senior policy fellow. And uh, her brief is to support us in prosecuting the battle of ideas by challenging fundamentally bad policies, arguing what the alternatives are, and manufacturing products in her own right 
that promote the ideas, the principles we've defended for 90 years, a market economy, property rights, freedom of speech, individual liberty, and the rule of law. And um, when I shook her hand at the time that we agreed that she would join us, I did say to her that I expect her to continue uh, tweeting away. <laughs> and uh, uh, early on, in fact, I was in an interview in the studio of a radio station. And the person asked me about Helen Zilla and what we were going to do. And then the person said, well, well of course, you're going to control her, her tweeting. And I said, absolutely not. Mm. Uh, firstly, I don't control what my colleagues do or say. Mm. Uh, they are uh, free agents in some respects. And um, if you employ uh, people of the nature that we employ, you're not going to manage what they say in any case. And uh, I said to this person, no, we're not going to control what she tweets, because a lot of what Helen says in her tweets is the truth. And people need to hear it, because it's real. And only if you get the, Noam Chomsky said the smart way to keep people passive and obedient is to strictly limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, and then to encourage vigor, very vigorous debate within that spectrum. An example in our case is there's a very vigorous debate in our country about how to do race-based BE better. But there's no debate about empowerment policies that might do empowerment better than race-based BE. Mm. And the only way you break those structural constraints on, on discussion that Chomsky describes is by having the likes of a Helen Ziller who runs hard at those barriers and breaks them down so that people can see how artificial they were to begin with. And I hope that, that above all else, I expect certainly that um, that will be one of the features of uh, Helen's association with us over the um, period of that association. Mm. And I mean, yeah, she is, she has, she's my favorite politician of all time, hands down. So I am a little bit jealous that, uh, you know, somebody have lost her. Um, but I think we've uh, lost it to a very good cause. So, yeah. Um, just before we end, I have to uh, honor the, the super chat uh, questions that were asked. And I think that it's two questions that that's not really related to this conversation. Well, one is, which is, uh, was asked by Pseudo Booth or Pseudo Ruth. I'm not sure. She asked, what made you join the Institute of Race Relations? Um well, I, I was familiar with it, of course, when I was at university, and I'd been I'd been living overseas, and I had always had extraordinary admiration for the stances that it had taken, and uh, particularly those of John Kane Berman, its its long-standing CEO, to whom I owe a great debt of gratitude. And I was very pleased when I, I wrote to John from abroad and. Um, said to him, could I come and work for you? And John said, yes, but I'm going to pay you very little. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I was I was happy to join at the bottom of the pile. And, uh, you know, my, my I'll, I'll answer perhaps what I see in some of my colleagues, um, that, you know, for, for all the sort of gruff exteriors sometimes and, and the hard-edged commentary, I think the reason people stick with a group such as ours is because they really do believe that it is important to take a stand in trying to create the circumstances that can ensure that our country can escape uh, from the position it's in at the moment and uh, survive that in, in, in relatively good shape. 
in order to rebuild that we can one day realize our great potential. And that, that I, I have come to learn, and none of them would say it, is the key motivating factor behind many of the staff that will turn up in our offices tomorrow morning. Mm. Um, yeah, br brilliant. Uh, the, the one other question, and I think you've already answered it, but maybe just to give a direct answer, is uh, he, uh, Brett says, uh, says Sims asked about uh, you know, uh, racial quotas in, in rugby, but I think let's extend this further to just racial quotas per se. What is your stance on, on, on quotas? Quotas are racist. Of course they're racist. They say that for an accident of birth, policies or the state should treat you differently to someone else. It's the dictionary textbook definition. Now, what is that? where does that leave us as a country? Well, a, 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 a central a line that we take, a lobby that we drive, is that all race-based policy and legislation in South Africa should be scrapped gone and done away with. No government that has tried to run this country according to the, along the lines of the races, race of its various people has uh, produced anything other than a complete shambles, as we see again. In place of racial policy, there is, of course, a great need for uh, steps and measures, policies that will help people who are poor to escape from poverty and join the middle classes. Particularly given the history of the country, it's a morally right thing to do. And our uh, uh, proposal is therefore this. Scrap all race-based legislation. Replace it with empowerment policies that pick their beneficiaries not according to the color of their skin, but according to the actual established socioeconomic disadvantage of the individual. Given the state of play and given our history, the beneficiaries of those policies will in the main be black, but they won't be beneficiaries because they are black, but because they are poor. Mm. It is a subtle but profoundly important distinction upon which the broad acceptance of which hinges probably more than anything else the type of country that we are going to become. And so the advice to someone who might be watching this is, um, is we, we don't have a choice between race-based empowerment policy or nothing. Race-based empowerment policies in any event turn out to be nothing more than a rent-seeking exercise, uh, 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 an attempt to, to exploit the historical suffering of black people in order to enrich a small uh, number of politically connected and often very corrupt individuals. Yeah. And uh, we deserve a lot more than that and better than that as a country. And uh, where you get into a discussion, uh, perhaps around the Bri or so, about these things, know that the alternative is clear. You don't need a proxy for race or for disadvantage. Race is not a proxy for disadvantage. You do not need a proxy for disadvantage because you have disadvantage itself. It can be measured and determined. And, and, and surely we, we could all agree, or a great majority of us, that if you are a poor person, and your poverty arises in part because of the racist policies of former South African governments. Surely it is good and right that we put in place measures and mechanisms to try and help you to get away from that so that you can one day, your children at least, join South Africa's middle classes. Uh, so quotas are out, as 
on, on the grounds, and not just that they don't work, but on the principle that they are racist. Mm. Replace it with socio-economic-based empowerment policy, and for the first time, in fact, a substantial majority of poor black South Africans will be in the crosshairs as beneficiaries of the country's empowerment policy framework. And I, a lot of, we make this argument a lot, and a lot of, of, of people pretend that they don't understand what we're saying, but we can't believe they're as stupid as they pretend to be. Um, and I, I still want to see a coherent rebuttal of the case for why South Africa should not turn its empowerment policy framework on its head to focus, instead of people who, on people who are black, to focus on people who are poor. Mm. And uh, I think you need a, a pulpit to preach from, Franz. Um, but on that bombshell and on that amazing uh, answer, I think that uh, I would like to thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's been an absolutely amazing experience. Um, and thank you for what you are doing uh, in fighting for a better South Africa. And uh, I really do appreciate you giving us, uh, you know, an hour and a half on, on a Sunday evening to come on to the show and speak about it. It was a great pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Um, and so on. with that being said, guys, please be sure to go and support the Institute, Institute of Race Relations. I am a friend of the Institute of Race Relations. I contribute monthly. Uh, I can't recommend them enough. Uh, there are so many different uh, contributors for the Institute of Race Relations that do amazing work. We've got Big Daddy Liberty. We've got Helen Ziller. We've got uh, Franz Grunier and himself as the CEO that do amazing work. So if you are interested, uh, everything is in the description below. Uh, but most importantly, please be sure to SMS your name to 32823 and then they will get in touch with you and that we can contribute as South Africans um, or at least free thinking, uh, sound minded South Africans to uh, a better South Africa. Franz, once again, thank you really. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Ronaldo. Thanks. And that's a wrap for this week's show. Keep updated to this podcast by hitting the follow button. And if you've enjoyed this dose of common sense, then be sure to like, post, and share with everyone you know. Till later, cheers and peace out.